Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Early Education Show. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. I'm Leanne. And I'm very happy to introduce a special guest host, our first guest host for the week. I'd like to introduce uh, Carl Hessian. How are you going, Carl? Well, thank you, Liam. Thanks for inviting me. It's very... Well, Carl, we're very honoured to have you. So, Carl, um, just a a little bit of background, and we'll we'll obviously hear from Carl uh, during the episode, but uh, Carl... Uh, he's a friends with all of us on Twitter. Uh, one of the people I've met, met, met you a few times, Carl, in Melbourne. I know Lisa and Leanne, you both met Carl. But um, Carl works particularly uh, in the uh, sort of um, childcare benefit, childcare rebate space with um, with services in Victoria and has a particularly good knowledge. So in that sort of space, so it's going to be very useful for our chat today. So, yeah, we're really happy you could join us, Carl. No, no you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Now, given that you're the special guest, car, we're actually going to turn over the news of the week to you. Uh, so do you want to tell us what you're bringing to the table today? Uh, certainly. Well, I think last week, last Wednesday, I believe it was, in the Magistrates Court or District Court in New South Wales there, the um, uh, jury found uh, Melissa Higgins from Albury guilty of a uh, substantial fraud. Um, and it was a particularly unsettling fraud for me personally because of the nature of, the, of, of what she had, she had done and uh, essentially um, over a period from I think approximately December 2013 through until March 2015 when she was uh, arrested she had rorted the special childcare benefit scheme and for those of you who, who know that or work with that that is probably one of the most important stop gap measures that the department makes available to children's services um, it gives some discretion and some leeway to services to be able to um, react rapidly to a situation where a child might be at risk um, or where there are straightened financial circumstances for a family and to be able to claim some some money and then subsequently in a short time afterwards sort out the paperwork so I think um, it was unsettling on that regard and secondly uh, the magnitude of it was just absolutely astounding. The figures we saw in the newspaper there were suggesting that she had claimed somewhere in the order of $180 per hour of this subsidy, which is getting up for 15 to 20 times what an, um, a provider would ordinarily, ordinarily claim. It's pretty amazing. So this is the return of our, um, and I still haven't found a sound effect for it, but it's our, our, our rorting klaxon, our rorting mm-hmm. alarm. This is the rort of the week. But um, it was pretty It was pretty staggering. I mean, it's, it's and you're right, Carl, it is, the, yeah, there's two sides of it. It is one of those really important measures of the current system uh, to support uh, families experiencing uh, you know, vulnerable circumstances a period of time. but Temporarily. Temporarily, because it never gets approved after the first 13 weeks, but... Uh, so the fact that someone would see to rip a bit, what comes back to this to me is the, how easily this was done. And this was the same question we had with Family Day. How has it taken the department so long to A, identify it and B, do anything about it? About yeah. How, how much, sorry, Carl, how much was it in the end that she uh, achieved from her, <laughs> from her rorting? Um, I think I saw in the newspaper that it was in the order of uh, in excess of $3 million, yeah. I think $3.6 million. Mm. What was equally puzzling, and sort of just a little bit of colour on the side, was that the, the department uh, recovered something in the excess of, something in the region of $2.25 million in cash. So it was one of those frauds where it was substantially in excess of what she could physically spend or dispose of. Um, so oh, so I she mean, just this... had it sitting in the bank waiting for... <laughs> 
waiting to donate to good causes or something. She lived in Albury. If someone started spending that much money in a small country, you know, relatively small country town, someone would have noticed. So she was always at more risk, it appears, from her town noticing than from the department department. noticing. Yeah. I think um, the thing about this is this is so audacious and so so brazen and ultimately so, so, so dumb that um, it was going to be caught at some point. But the, the scale is, is so stupendous that it, it, it was really staggering that it hadn't been picked up by some kind of electronic control. Yeah, wouldn't I'd... we have a cap that says, gee, if you're charging more than X an hour, well, there is a there. human being has to kind of glance at what's happening? But this, I, is, I, this I agree, is part yeah. of the... Um, I'm just trying to remember whether there was... Uh, there must have been a consultation last year where we were talking about this. This is part of the minister's rules, I think, isn't it? In the new, in in some of the the new um, package, is how how this can't kind of happen. But you would think it wouldn't be able to happen anyway, but just I, because of the. But scale. I'm sure, and not to get too into the weeds on this, but isn't there there is a limit, isn't there? Isn't there an imposed limit that it's a percentage of um, whatever childcare rebate was claimed in the last quarter? Very, yeah, very good point. So 18% of the um, childcare yeah. benefit is what can be claimed. But um, so there's, there's a multiple, there are multiple um, failures to detect this because the, obviously there's no, there's no way you could physically claim that, that kind of CCP. <laughs> C- CCP is an hourly rate. And so you need to be generating, you know, hundreds of thousands of hours of childcare benefit to be getting, um, that, you know, <laughs> special childcare benefit of, of, uh, of, of only 18% of that claim. No, I think um, that, there are so many so many uh, failures to implement controls here that um, I, I guess I've just been quite nonplussed by it. I mean, you know, it's it's extraordinary. So, is it more a technology fraud than a than you know, if if there were those ways that 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 it was happening, this person's a genius. We need to get them doing something really good. No, no, no. They're not a genius. The problem is is that there's no. Um, nothing built into the system to stop this kind of fraud happening. Anyone could do this, you know, and apparently anyone has. (laughs) And I think, um, you know, we found with one of the other family daycare frauds, and remember, Liam, this is a family daycare again, but with one of the others, they were just testing out numbers to see what they could put in and how high they could go. Oh, okay, so there's actually no cap in there on the, the hourly hourly rate there on the, well, think, the sorry the rate i think what liam was getting at there there's a there's a policy but the policy hasn't been backed up with technological control yeah that seems fairly obvious you would think because all that stuff has to be submitted exactly. to yeah. and i know we said we wouldn't get in the ways we may as well but the, the, all this stuff has to be submitted through the ccms system why isn't it just, yeah. just an alarm that goes this is exceeding the yeah anyway. so it gets what, back um, to the so, yeah. point that if there's a rot to be had then <laughs> it will happen <laughs> I thought it was pretty amazing that she's only a 27-year-old. So, you know, right. They say it, young people have no drive and in ambition these days. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it shows that young people are more technologically aware and go, okay, well, I'll try it one week. Gee, that didn't trip anything. Let's try it so again that was, next that week. That was my point about it being a technology fraud in a way because it is, you know, it's, it's kind of like have a go. It doesn't work. Test the space. Have another go. <laughs> yeah. Look, it's 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 white collar crime, but of a, of an unusual kind in an unusual you know setting. But right. it's, that's what it is. Yeah. 
Well, we will, as as your number one rotting podcast, we will keep you abreast of any other future rorts that uh, come to our knowledge. But we might move on uh, to our single topic for tonight, for today. That Lisa keeps telling me to stop saying tonight, although we record it tonight. Um, and we will be doing just a single topic. Given there's four of us, and this is a fairly big topic, we're actually just going to do the one tonight, and we're going to be talking about uh, the the rise or the the growth of uh, what we're talking terming corporate early education services so with a particular focus on um, private equity and sort of large-scale providers so this is a pretty big topic and we're going to be getting definitely into the weeds on this one which is why it's great to have Carl with us but we might just kick off with a little bit of a history lesson and I, I, I I've tasked myself to do this and I'm going to keep this as brief as possible. Um, so we need to cast our minds back to essentially really for this story, the 1980s, when the, the system essentially worked on a demonstrated community need. So a community would approach um, the, the state government and say, we have a demonstrated need for a childcare service in this space. And then they would get an operational subsidy to basically run it uh, in, in very general broad terms. But that was essentially the system. It was all community, not for profit. And it was essentially only done in where, where there could be a demonstrated need for it. Uh, in the early 1990s, uh, private operators uh, were allowed to sort of enter the space as they could then uh, sort of claim the operational subsidy as well. And that was a decision by the Labor Prime Minister, Paul Keating, uh, which sort of was the first crack in the door of where we're at now. And then what happened with our good old friend John Howard in the early 2000s was a fairly substantial shift in the system. So, And it was a shift to, instead of the government funding services directly through the operational subsidy, uh, it was it was shifted to essentially what's now, what is, and, and still is, is a welfare subsidy, so the childcare benefit and the childcare uh, rebate. Although I think, I, look, I've, I've been in the sector a long time, I, I always get those two confused. I think there was one first and then another one came along later. And someone can remind me of which way that went around before. But uh, Yeah, it was fee relief. It was fee, yeah, that's yes. right. And then the names changed a bit later. And the, the level and type of those fees has sort of shifted a little bit. But essentially that was the was a huge shift in the system where instead of services being funded directly, the money went directly to families uh, to offset the, the cost of um, attending an early childhood centre. Uh, and I'm comfortable in saying this led directly to the rise and then subsequent fall of ABC Learning because essentially uh, this, this meant that organisations were essentially being gifted a sort of um, a bit of a cash cow because they could open services you know everywhere anywhere they knew that there would be a demand and they knew that families would be getting a subsidy to do it ABC grew and grew incredibly quickly they ended up with over 1100 services I think I think that's also including New Zealand but the huge majority of them were in Australia they outstripped you know their ability to grow properly and in 2006 uh, basically entirely fell over. And at that point, they were a huge proportion of the provision of early childhood education and care um, in Australia. It was pretty hard to drive down the road without seeing that um, damn teddy bear on a building somewhere on the corner of the street. Um, this would, was probably the biggest crisis that's ever afflicted Australian early childhood. It would have, if, 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 if the organisation had just fallen over, that would have meant I mean, it, 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 it's not dramatic to say it could have almost brought Australia to a halt because obviously the, the workforce participation relies on, to a large extent on a operating early childhood education and care sector. Uh, the government sort of semi-stepped in, so they uh, they pumped a lot of money into a consortium to keep uh, ABC going, which led to Good Start, who were now around, but um, that's probably another story. Uh, but so essentially 
the ABC left and a not-for-profit took over, which sort of redressed the balance of private versus not-for-profit. Um, the Labor government then, sort of as a response to, to this, not directly, but at, as, as basically saying we need to ensure quality, we need to ensure regulatory standards at a national level, introduced the National Quality Framework, uh, which you know obviously set the standard for quality in early childhood edu- education and care and also brought together very diverse and disparate state and territory-based uh, regulatory and legal systems. Uh, and then we're now, and that's the, the, the system we're in now, and somewhat, well, I guess we'll have that discussion about whether it's surprisingly, I guess it's a bit surprising to me, we're actually looking at the rise of probably slightly cleverer and slightly more savvy than ABC, um, large providers. So um, that so we have GA who now have uh, 450 plus centres and are the second biggest provider next to Good Start. So that is a very, very brief summary of sort of where we're at where and we've Liam, sort of come from. Can I make a tiny, tiny correction? Oh, that was I a knew I'd get something wrong. Summary. No, that was an absolutely magical summary. But when you live through these things, you kind of feel them more strongly. So, um, operational subsidy was never extended to the private sector. It oh. was only it was only fee relief, um, and it was actually withdrawn from the community sector because uh, they wanted to create a level playing field. You're which right. In '97. So, I just want to. That, but apart from that, it was a beautiful summary. I'm so sorry. close. It was all in one <laughs> breath as well. <laughs> but it was to make um, for uh, not-for-profit services more efficient and cost-competitive. Yeah, in and, this, the and this sector and this idea that the, the when there was an identified sort of issue with um, waiting lists and and accessibility, that the market would solve it because all yeah. hail all hail the market. So if we because basically we'll treat early childhood centres like bakeries and, and you can open as many as you want and families will choose the good ones. So it's, you know, obviously ignoring the fact that many families don't have that choice or can't or are not in a position to make that choice. So that's basically the context of where we are now. We're obviously going to be Can talking... I ask mm. a question there too, Liam? Go How many services did you say that G8 owned? It's around 400. We were talking about this just before we started, Kai. It's just over 450, isn't it, at the moment? Yeah, it's actually 478. Yeah. And they've got 35,221 places. Wow. Now, that could include they own some places in Singapore, so I've never been able to absolutely you know, work out if that includes the Singapore ones or not. But. Yeah. Can I, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, at the end of, the, end of June 2016, I think they had 447 services, but they had 37,000 places. And what we've seen in the last couple of months is um, an unusual kind of churn. They've executed some more contracts and picked up some more services, but they've also sold, I think, 22 services mm-hmm. in the last few months. So I, I don't know what that means at this point, but um, they are, they are an, a net acquirer of services, but they are disposing some as well. And we'll so find out what, over time what that means. What's the reason? Yeah, what's the reason for them? I don't actually know. I don't actually know. I mean, I can speculate, but I don't actually know why they would be doing that. All right. Well, before we get into the details of sort of specific or companies, we might just sort of, I guess, ask the question amongst us all, given where Australia is at at the moment, given the context we just talked about, what is the place of private providers sort of in the early childhood system? I might go to you first, uh, Leanne. What, what, you know, yeah, what is the place of private providers in early childhood? Uh, well, obviously, I mean, you said that it is that it's to um, make the market work because there just wasn't the um, capacity for government to expand enough to to create the space, the places that were needed. Um, so they just couldn't meet that demand. But I, it's sort of exponentially 
it's, I guess to me it's uh, out of control. I'm sure I'll be smacked down for that somewhere along the way. Um, when I when the market was first expanding, it was you know sort of like a, a twenty uh, private services, eighty percent uh, not for profit, and then that's kind of almost switched around. Yeah, well, the, the, sorry to interrupt, Leanne, but yeah. I, I just looked this up before we started. So the last uh, National Quality Framework snapshot from a CEQA puts it at 47% uh, are private for-profit providers okay. and the rest are a split of independent community not-for-profit. But community yeah. not-for-profit is only at about 28% now. Yeah, yeah but I... that also depends what um, sort of services you're looking at in long-day care. It's more like 70%. Um, for profit to thirty yeah, percent to thirty not yeah. for profit. Yeah, so I suppose in, in from my perspective, it you know I sort of grew up in early childhood with this change, and I still fundamentally believe that we should have services being not for profit because the the primary thing around pri- private endeavour is to make a profit, and I I don't believe that early childhood should be there for a profit. So in terms of where, where my perspective, I suppose, is in the for-profit or not-for-profit sector, it's the principle of it for me. It's not that there are people who aren't doing well in their private services. They are. They're delivering beautiful quality, yeah. you know, depending on the service. But it's the principle to me around whether early childhood education and care should be for-profit or not-for-profit. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I guess I probably should have said this at the top as well. Look, anyone who knows, I guess particularly Leanne and Lisa and myself, and but it's probably also followed Carl on Twitter, knows that, look, we're all very strong community not-for-profit advocates. But uh, we, as I sort of said last week, well, we never set out to offend or make anyone too cranky or angry with us. And we are going to talk in general terms about the structures and the large organisations. We, as as you said, Leanne, oh, look, I, I, I strongly agree, but that does not mean that in private for-profit, both individual services and in some of those large chains, that there are not amazing educators and teachers and directors doing amazing work. And we are, and we we hope, you know, anyone from those organisations and or, or any of those educators and teachers listening to us aren't, uh, to annoyed at us, but we are going to talk just about that principle, and and it is for me. And I've, I've and look, and I've written about this a lot. Is that as soon as the as soon as for profit is a motive, so as soon as profit is a motive, it can very quickly become the only motive. So when the pressure gets on, and when occupancy levels drop, it's far more likely to um, lead to a focus on uh, you know cutting costs or, or or reducing quality to ensure that um, to ensure that. You know those, those profits are maintained because at the end of the day, that's the goal, and this is why it's, that's not allowed to happen in the school sector. You're not allowed to make a profit from schools, and I, I, I fundamentally don't see why early childhood education should be different. And I, and I know this has made people cranky, and I've I've spoken to people face to face. I just I I do not ethically know how anyone could make a profit from educating the youngest people in our community. That's pretty much where I sit too, Liam. It's just a, a really simple thing for me, which is why should funds exit the system to go to, um, you know, private profits, especially I think with corporations where the primary duty of a board of a corporation is to make profit for its shareholders. So its duty above all else is to its shareholders so the children that it's caring for are only a means, in a sense, to an end. And to me, that just doesn't work. 
But I think it's kind of, we can't quite say it was just because of um, the demand, the need to fill the demand that private providers were brought in. I think it's very much part of an ideological thing that says, oh, employment services, yes, let's get rid of the Commonwealth Employment Service and privatise that. Um, you know, oh, hospitals, you know, let's privatise that. Telstra, let's privatise that. It's just continuing down that curve. Yeah. Well, Carl, I might give you a chance to answer sort of that question as well. So what's the place of uh, private providers? But I also just want to flick a specific question to you, which is sort of why we've got you here is, are you, can you give us a bit of a rundown on the difference between the ownership structures in some of these, uh, these for-profit providers as well? Um, certainly, yeah. Now, I've, I substantially, in fact, completely agree with um, all of the comments that you've made so far. So I won't... Um, expand on that uh, any, any further. But I, I would observe one of the interesting things in the not-for-profit space as well is the extent to which um, children's services are sometimes used to cross-subsidise other services that a not-for-profit organisation values. And that might be in a training capacity or something completely outside of early childhood altogether. And I think um, the extent to which that takes place is not entirely clear, um, but I think that there are uh, a, a number of organisations, uh, structures across private providers and not-for-profit not -profit providers, which do actually rely on profits from um, uh, providing a children's service to uh, cross-subsidise something else. So having said that, um, with regards to the different types of ownership structures, I suppose the way that I approach this question, and I think I might have mentioned this, this to you a little bit earlier, is I've been considering the considering the way in which um, the question is it is it more likely or not that a specific ownership type and an operating model um, that is employed within that structure or type um, is used to allow educators to focus on children and children's learning or not. And when you look at the specific kinds of um, uh, uh, operating structure that are available. We can broadly divide them into not-for-profit and for-profit structures. So we're familiar with the not-for-profit types, which are incorporated associations. They don't have any owners as such. Um, they might be run or auspiced by a council, for example, but they have members and they run for the benefit of their members specifically. And then you have, on the other hand, uh, private uh, or public companies, which have shareholders and owners. And I think what we've, what we've been getting at is when we come to this latter type of organisation, you've introduced a different interest into the system. So when, you, when you're running a not-for-profit children's service, you've got the interests of children, and you've got the interests of parents, and the interests of staff that you need to manage, and doing that is difficult enough. When you factor in the interests of an owner who may be quite disconnected from children and from children's learning, you introduce a different tension um, altogether. And when you've got a small not-for-profit organisation, uh, sorry, which, uh, my mistake. When you've got a small for-profit uh, private company, which might only have one or two owners and might only own one children's service, for example, the character of how that operates is substantially different to when you've got a group structure or a corporate structure, which might have many dozens or um, scores of children's services um, providing a service, which is completely disconnected from its shareholder base. 
which might be running from not one or two owners, but might run through to the thousands or tens of thousands. And um, just to underscore what you were saying um, earlier, this is the, the central tension. This is the central tension um, around the question of um, what are the ownership structures and operating models that can actually allow, children, allow educators to focus on children and what ones actually can't because of the uh, extreme interest from their owners. Yeah, thanks for that that's rundown. A, that's a great way to look at it and, yeah, very a very balanced approach, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th I think um, if I could make a comment on quality for, for a moment, one of the things that we talk about with the National Quality Framework is quality in a positive sense. And, and what you're trying to do is identify a way that you can have quality in the sector. I think part and parcel of that, the, the, the yin to the yang, is separately, are, are there structures, and this is a rhetorical question, are there structures which cannot ever possibly deliver a quality service? And if there are, how would you, how would you approach trying to identify those? And so r related to a positive approach to quality, I've got um, this, this negative approach of saying, what are the ones that can never ever work? And what do you do about those? Can I give you some stats from one of our corporates, which might in fact ask answer that? Think, who is our smallest corporate at the moment? If I'm right, Carl, we only have two corporates right now. Is that right? Um, well, I, I, look, we've got two publicly listed companies. Yeah. Eight, okay. Think, yeah. yeah. Okay. So with Think, um, a few weeks ago, I checked what their ratings were. 41% of their services were rated as working towards, right? That compares to nationally 33% of services. 54% of their services were um, rated as meeting and that compares to 38% of all services. And this is the real kicker for me. Only 5% of their services were rated as exceeding compared to 28% of all services nationally. And that's pretty reflective, really, of just in, even just spiralling out a bit, the difference in uh, quality ratings between not-for-profit and for-profit are pretty stark as well, aren't they, Lisa? Yeah, they are. But yeah. it's, a, like, as stark as they are, when you extract individual corporates and look at them, it gets a lot worse. Yeah. Well, thinking about your sort of rhetorical questions you put there, Carl, uh, might segue us into probably the next question I wanted to pose, which is sort of um, like you know basically what is corporate provision? So what is what what a GA and think I guess do differently to um, to the rest of the players in the sector? And I might uh, and 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 I guess what are the dangers? And I guess I, I might answer that first by saying I think probably in terms of uh, answering your sort of question about the operating model, where I think this becomes a danger, and I will include all for-profit services in this is a discussion about quality so when you're saying carl you know what what structures can benefit quality i think where what what we can do really well in not-for-profit space is that quality can become about children so it's entirely about what is going to be the best you know the, the best environment the best educators the best stuff that will support children to uh, you know work towards the outcomes of the early years learning framework which is really at the end of the day under the nqf what we're here to do 
what I think the the difference is in for profit and particularly in these uh, corporate players is it becomes specifically about families because because you're always having to be marketing either externally to to new families come on the waiting list but even into the families that are currently with you. So quality doesn't become necessarily about specifically what's happening to the children. It becomes what do the families think are happening with the children. So this is where we get the rise of you know these apps that you know you need a photo every five minutes or you know everyone loses their heads and that to me is probably the stark difference between those two and that to me is a real danger because at the end of the day we should be very clear about you know parents don't really get a huge say in what gets taught at schools because there's a set curriculum and there's a set approach to how we're going to do what we're going to do at the end of the day our work should be about what's best for children not necessarily what uh is makes families happy or less guilty or 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 thinks children are cute yeah, and, and that's actually the, 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 I suppose, the key fundamental tension here is that we, we would all agree that the primary interest, primary interest, primary, I'm sorry, interest is a focus on children and children's learning. And um, that's not the approach that, that the, 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 the government primarily takes with its um, welfare model of supporting the sector. Yeah. It is. It is. It's primarily about parents. And to give examples, and I won't name probably this specific organisation because I think they're fairly litigious, but they can probably work it out. But there's organisations out there um, that you know provide you know free coffees on the way out, and there's a, there's an insane service in Canberra that has what they call a concierge service. So the parents literally drive in. They don't have to get out of the car. An educator is sent out to come and get the children out of the car and bring them into the service. I'm, so, I'm, I'm not so making I do that up. with dry cleaning sometimes. <laughs> but, but I, I, I just thought wonder, about doing it with a child. But, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 this sort of stuff kind of makes me feel so uncomfortable because, yeah. you know, thinking about a child being handed over, it's, it, it's and, a drive and not having that. But then I wonder sometimes, are we just old-fashioned? Like, are we just – do we just not have a grasp on what the – you know, is it better for a parent to be more relaxed as they drive in? Is it going to be better for the child? All of those things. It always comes into my mind, you know, are we just saying rock and roll's not okay? <laughs> those young kids listening to rock and roll. Well, look, yeah, to be, to I be honest, I might, I might, well, wonder. I'll play the, I'll play the, you know, well, I'm a, I'm a grumpy old man in all but my exterior, but I have a young family and they both attend early childhood education and care. Oh, sorry, I you forget you're the young one. I know. You would assume I'm the oldest person here, but I, I'm actually yes. not. But I, I have two children currently and that – so I'm prepared to play that I'm a current family and, and this – not no, it's not nonsense, but this – I do think some of the pressures on family life are, are different than they were before and there's an intensity, I think, to – how parents do their roles, but I've, I absolutely disagree. I think I, I would be more stressed, I think, going through a drive-through, having someone grab my child and then driving off. I think that even though it can lead to, you know, being a few minutes late for work or all that kind of stuff, it's far better that you have a relationship with the um, with the educators and, and the space. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a hippie person by any means, but I think you've got to have some sort of relationship with the actual physical space your children are going to be spending some sort of time in. So and I don't think we are. Well, we are crazy, Liam, but for different reasons. I don't think it's an unreasonable... Well, that, that's fine. I'm, a, I'm happy to go with that, Liam. I'm happy to you, for you to be the jury of one there, and I'm just <laughs> going to think that we're not old-fashioned. That's I, fine. I think Thank that's you. an interesting question, though, Leanne, because I do see, you know, more and more parents becoming convinced that childcare that is about marketing to them as parents um, is good quality childcare and childcare that is done in swish premises is good quality childcare 
as opposed to the things that research tells us is good quality childcare. Yeah, exactly. And as soon as we turn ourselves around to that focus on, we should all, and again, the National Quality Standard is clear on this, so we, we should have uh, very good partnerships and relationships with families, but that doesn't mean we just do whatever they say or that we just, we uh, our, our lives as centres become making them as comfortable and happy as possible. Sometimes there are going to be difficult discussions around what's going on for for their for their child. But I guess the other big question, I might actually direct this one specifically at you, Lisa. One of the other dangers for me in corporate vision is obviously what that means for advocacy. So we need to remember it's not that long ago the National Quality Framework was implemented and, and again, this won't make us any friends, but the Australian Childcare Alliance, which is the largest uh, peak body for, for for-profit providers, advocated against it and they were pretty blunt they advocated against it because they said it would uh, damage their business models and even once the national quality framework was introduced in the lead up to the 2013 election they strongly advocated against it and that to me is a real danger and i know you'd probably agree lisa do you have anything to sort of add to that i've answered my <laughs> question sorry rather than actually letting you answer it. yeah I, th- I think you're absolutely <laughs> right we're seeing more and more the large private providers and the um and also the uh, corporate providers are getting involved in the advocacy space. Some of them are even getting involved with larger advocacy organisations. And often, you know, they are, I'd say that some of them are learning the talk of advocacy and, uh, uh, you know, are, are saying that this would work really well for children but often it's primarily based upon what's um, best for their bottom line. So I think it is something that we have to be really scared about what, um, you know, what that kind of money can bring to bear in convincing governments to do things certain ways that work best for those organisations. I think... um just sticking on the topic of what are some of the dangers of corporate provision, I think um, one of the, the big things that stands out for me is the way that the um, narrative can be uh, spun by, by a corporate to be able to raise cash and raise debt to go off and um, acquire children's services and a private children's services, standalone ones typically, and, and pay over the odds for them. And in doing so, in, induce more of that type of service to be created in the first instance. And some of the valuations that get put on those um, individual services are so um, so, gar- so gargantuan that um, ev- even if you were um, one of the uh, best providers in a private space, some of the money that gets dangled is, is so high and so lucrative that at the end of the day, everyone's got their price and you would, you would sell. And as soon as you sold a service which is being run reasonably well, um, it's going to be absorbed into the corporate culture and um, uh, it, it will change. So I think there's, a, there's sort of a, an effect there that those large corporates can um, have upon that portion of the, the, of the private space, which actually, you know, is, is, is tolerable. And, it and it's interesting, the... Carl. Sorry, Leanne. We're oh, not no, used to having, all four, having four of us yeah. here. We're all talking yeah. over each other. Um, like we usually do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, in the context of what you're saying, Carl, it comes back to the the values as well and and many services will have been established for particular values with a particular mission in mind but they can't avoid being becoming engaged in the values of a a, a 
you know, the corporate's values, which are not going to be the same as those values that that small family-owned centre that's then being absorbed into the larger corporate, it's it's going to be completely different. And they, they have to engage in, in those values and that mission. Yeah, it's what on. They, they have to change. They have to. That's, that's, that's part of the story. And I, and I think the, the, the mere fact that this exists as, a, as an option, the, the mere fact that someone can, from scratch, take um, a service that they own, to take this in a separate direction, um, and then go out there and, and tell a story through their prospectus to actually raise capital for someone else to come along and buy their own service means that there is a, um, what, you would, what you would call it, a, a, a deep you know, asymmetry of, of knowledge there. The person who's been the vendor and is selling their service in an in a initial public offering or what have you um, knows a lot more about what they're doing than the potential people who are going to be um, putting, investing the capital into, into um, that, that company. And I think if I could draw on one example right at the moment, we have, um, we've had several um, companies that have tried to list on the stock exchange in the last couple of years. There's one right at the moment which has got a, a live prospectus called uh, Mayfield. And the, center, um, the centerpiece, the, the key service in that portfolio, which is looking to be um, offloaded and put onto the, uh, this company or the stock market, is a 70-place service in, um, in a Melbourne. And the valuation that the vendors have put on it themselves is $5.3 million, <laughs> which, is, um, wow. which is quite possibly the most expensive service you know, on a per-place capacity um, in the history of um, these kind of deals. I wouldn't know that, but it's so out there that… It would um, have to be close. It, 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 yeah, it's extraordinary. Wow. And and Carl, I think there's, and you might know this better than I do, but there's some evidence, and whether it's anecdotal or not, that the system you're talking about actually encourages people to basically just start a centre with the, just to sell it. So they're not opening it to provide high quality education. They're not opening it to, to you know, to, to give anything back to the community. They are literally starting a centre because they know someone will come along and buy it. Yes. Yeah. And sorry, I should clarify. That's what I meant by the word in, induce. You know, oh, you've, right. you, sorry, sorry, Liam. You've, 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 you've created You're going to use fancy words like induce, Carl. You've got to assume I don't know what, I don't know what they mean. And, and maybe they're just, maybe they're just um, setting it up to um, take advantage of the incredible subsidies that are available. Yeah, oh, absolutely, and that's why the, the system is sort of set up. So, I mean, continuing on that theme, and, and Carl, this might be a good one directed to you first, but, you know, what we've sort of already had that discussion a little bit, but what what's the impact of these new private equity providers, particularly if, as seems likely, more come along? What, what Where do we think this is likely to, to lead us? Um, well, let's look uh, specifically at the, um, the affinity education situation. Because I don't think I don't don't think we have that many um, private equity owners. Yes, we do. I've been researching, and there's Can at I... least four or five now, and more look like they're coming onto onto into the scene. And um, I think it's really interesting because. Whereas uh, previously, with corporations or publicly listed corporations. Their books are open, so you can see when they're doing dodgy things like um, having way too much goodwill on on their books for what their services are worth. But with um, uh, private equity investors, we're not seeing what's happening in those services. 
and we've actually seen the delisting of um, uh, of affinity, haven't we, Carl? Yeah, that's exactly right, and that's that's uh, that's exactly the point. And and um, the situation there was that um, uh, Anchorage saw an opportunity in its eyes to take affinity education from being a um, I think it's reasonable. I think it's fair to say a, a, a distressed company that was on the stock market, and 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 delist it. And the reason that you do that specifically is because you think that um, you're going to be able to um, manage it, run it better, and then at some point sell it on. And typically, um, the, the the way in which you make money out of that kind of deal is is conceptually pretty straightforward. You'd stump up a bit of cash and you get some. Um, some borrowings from um, some investors or a bank or what have you, um, buy all of the shares in the company on the, on the stock market and then um, take, it, take it privately. And the advantage there, of course, is that, as you say, Lisa, um, suddenly it becomes opaque. It's a large private company. And until um, the, the private equity firm has decided that they're ready to bring it back to the market um, in a, you know, uh, a new, new and improved state, you, you're not going to know exactly what's, what's going on there. And that doesn't um, necessarily mean bringing it back to the market as a, a publicly listed company, does it? Well, um, there would be an exit strategy in mind somewhere along the line because private equity doesn't want to be uh, keeping these, these assets and operating them. This is, this is I think, one of the important um, developments in this area. They're, they're not interested in children. They're not interested in childcare. They're interested in making money in, in, in buying something that they think is um, – uh, at one price and then flipping it later on at a high price. That's all. Buying, buying low when it's underperforming and then turning it around. Spot on. Yep. Yeah. And, dressing, and that's um, what we saw with Guardian Early Learning. So Guardian was sold, it was set up by one individual guy and it was then sold to Wolseley Private Equity in 2013. Then it was sold again to Navis Capital Partners a bit later in 2013. I may have those years wrong. Um, which is uh, Navis Capital Partners is a, a very large, you know, um, multinational private equity firm that also owns Kindercare Education in the US. So this seems to be, you know, like a niche market for them. But it's also happened with Only About Children as well. So Only About Children was owned by one individual bloke. They're always blokes for some reason. (laughs) Um, And then it was purchased by Bain Capital Private Equity. And Bain Capital also owns large shareholdings in a US childcare provider called Bright Horizons and another called Rise Education in China. So we're seeing more and, you know, I could go through some more that have come in, but we're seeing that happen more and more. And I'm kind of going, why are all these big American firms, you know, suddenly interested in our childcare? Like obviously childcare is backed by government funding and it gives a large cash flow. But Whereas there's a bit of a misconception, what I call the ABC learning effect, where people actually believe that there's advantages in consolidating individually owned um, childcare services because you'll get economies of scale and people believe, well, look, he owned, you know, helicopters and basketball teams, you know, there must be money in childcare. I would have thought that overseas large private equity firms would have been a bit more um, sensible to the fact that there isn't economies of scale 
and also that there's not that much money to be made in childcare. But there is a lot of money to be made in childcare if you apply particular business values and, and growth and the sorts of things that we're talking about, buying in low and selling them high. Like there is, there oh, there's is money, money to, to be, be made. made in churning childcare centres but not in operating them. Yeah, so if you just apply your business principles and your market principles there, then everything's okay. But that's but again, are we being a bit old-fashioned about this? Uh, no, no, I don't think you are. <laughs> You're not. Um, look, th- oh, thanks, this, that's good. yeah, that's okay. No, no, I, no. <laughs> um, and, and look, to go back to an earlier comment, Lisa, you're, you're, you're dead right. They don't necessarily need to exit these investments by putting them back onto the stock market in some form. They just need, they just need to find someone else to buy them. Um, but I, th- but I think that this is. This is the this is the extreme here. This is the sheer disinterest in what the underlying assets are themselves, um, provided though provided one or two things can happen. Provided they can really sweat them to get the to, to get cash out, or can can spin a narrative down the track to sell it to somebody else. They're, they're not interested in um, operating them for the long term. Uh, I, I would I would expect that based on some of the newspaper reports we're seeing from um, about regarding Anchorage. That they're probably having a very difficult time of things with um, Affinity and and those particular services. It's probably not as bad for the for the other private equity firms you've mentioned. Uh, I suspect those firms don't have anywhere near the level of um, debt and goodwill. But I'd be speculating because we can't see their finances. Well, I guess uh, we it might be a good time to move on to. I guess one of the big dangers of um, these sort of like particularly large providers is that we could. Uh, I guess see another ABC style crash of the system. So this has happened. It didn't happen that long ago in Australia. So this is not a far fetched notion, and it is one of the big, uh, I guess, points that advocates like us make when we talk about these things. So Australia is in a very different place right now. The sector is in a very different place. What what, what do we all think if there was, you know, another similar style crash? So I guess the only sort of um, the only hypothetical we could draw at the moment would be G eight. So let's assume you know G eight get another hundred centres in the next two years or something, and then. Uh, fall over. What 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 would be different this time if that happened now? Carl, do you want to talk about um, you know the proportion of goodwill that G eight's carrying in the, their books? Yes, with with regard to the goodwill being carried by G eight, um, at the present time, it's somewhere in the order of I think nine hundred and fifty million dollars. Which, in an absolute figure, is is, is quite extraordinary, um, but the total assets of the company are only um, 1.1 billion or something. So we're talking about a an, an organisation, a company which has got in excess of 85% um, of all of its assets are are goodwill, and that in and of itself is is kind of neither here nor there, except for the fact that you couple with that. You've got three hundred million, three hundred fifty million dollars of debt, and clearly that's debt that's not backed by assets that can be liquidated in a hurry um, should should that situation arise. And so I think it's very, I think it's it's a good question to ask about could we ever have a a, a ABC Learning type collapse again? If we did, it would look slightly different, I suspect, in that um, ABC Learning, of course, was a an operational basket case in many respects, <laughs> and it, it, and in fact, it, it had transgressed into um, outright fraud in some areas. Yeah, uh, that's that's fair to say. Um, and you'd never accuse G8 of that. Um, 
I think what would probably trigger this would be a, a straight up and down classic kind of um, financial crisis in the, of the kind where, um, you know, they've got debt has to be repaid um, in two years' time and then again in three years' time. And if for some reason they're not able to repay that debt because, I don't know, their services are operating in markets where they're not able to get um, uh, the occupancy, for example, and they can't service the debt, that's when they could, you, you could probably see them getting into trouble. At the, at the present time, I don't, I don't see that in the very short term. Um, if it were to happen again, though, um, I don't know whether we would have the political will to, to when I say we, I mean the, the country, have the political will to, to revisit that. I think it depends upon the circumstances at the time. Um, we've, we've, we've gone through a very long period in this country without a recession, in the order of 25 years. Everything that's taken place in early childhood, which is material, has taken place you know, in that period. And... Yeah. It, depending on the nature of what the event may be that a, a large company would collapse, if it took place against the backdrop of a, a widespread recession, hypothetically, with a higher upturn in unemployment, I don't know that there would be quite the, 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 the will to um, support unviable services. Yeah, it's interesting too because they, unlike ABC Learning, which had one brand only, um, G8 has about 24 brands, right? So it's a... Yeah, it, it's kind of a bit harder for people to see it collapsing. It's like, okay, this brand's collapsing, you know, um, the Learning Sanctuary or Cool Kids or Sandcastles, but you don't actually realise it's all actually owned by the one provider. That's that's potentially the case, yeah. And just to be clear as well, um, I don't see any, at, at this point in time, I don't see any of those brands or any of their brands, in fact, being distressed in any way. Um but, but you're right. Um, it's, there's a, there is that disconnection at, at the service level, um, and that's quite deliberate. That actually is one of the lessons from ABC Learning was um, don't roll in and create a mega brand. Yeah. Well, when, there's, when there's the – oh, sorry. No, 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 after you, man. Um, just that when – although there's no appetite to rescue, the hmm. problem is that there, there are will be so many children without a place to go. So – the What's option. the alternative? Yeah, yeah, there is no, there is no alternative. Then. I think it would be diabolical. Yeah, because I think you're, you're exactly right. The political system is say, well, what what would worry me as well is that I think you know if if an organisation of that size went down, they would probably blame the national quality framework and depend. So they would blame too much regulation, too many. You know, we need too many educators. We especially as the the, the requirements for early childhood teachers and everything become more prominent over the next couple of years. What worries me is that it could lead to a flow and impact where they say look, the national quality framework is to blame. The coalition, you know, conservative government at the time picks that up. That, you know, the the, peak, the for-profit peak bodies get on board as well, and that would be a huge. I'd be risk arguing to the against them because only sixty percent of their income is spent on wages. Yeah, but I think, but it began. It's it, fairly is, low compared to you know community-based providers that are generally up there at about eighty percent. But they would make the nebulous argument, which they always do, Lisa, around red tape, which they don't need any evidence for. They just sort of say red tape, dead hand of government regulation. I think as a, a the, the political climate at the moment is so radically different from two thousand and six when you know we had the the, the you know the K Rudd movement and the, the the sort of a big sweep towards progressivism. I I really worry that you're right, I don't know what they would do, but I just know that. You know, any government that is similar to the one we've currently got is not going to step in and and do anything about it. But and it could potentially just lead to a, you know a devastation of the sector. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it depends upon as, as you as you said previously the, the circumstances that it would find itself in at the time, really. Yeah. 
So we might have a look at, so given we've, um, what we always try to do is we like to identify lots of problems and then talk about them and rant about them and, 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 and go on about them at length. We always try and finish, I think, with a bit of a solutions focus. So if you're going to bring a problem, bring a solution. So I might, we, we, we're you know, getting towards the end, but maybe we'll go one by one. I might start, or as, as the guest, Carl, of course, I'm going to go to you first, but, um, and then maybe uh, Leanne and then Lisa. Um, so what would each of us propose if we could propose something about sort of either fixing or improving or just making things better in the current system in relation to um, this sort of corporate revision? What What's the sort of one thing we might do? So over to you, Carl. Uh, I, can think of, I can think of two things. They both relate to transparency. In some respects, you fit into this um, podcast already so well, Car. I tell you to do one thing, and you get to. We do that all the time to each other. <laughs> I'll, I'll, give you, I'll, I'll give you the choice. Yeah, I'll, I'll, you can pick one. Yeah. Um, in the in the trans in the transparency vein, I, I, and I'm taking a, a very very narrow approach, not a sort of a pie in the sky approach. If there was something practical and actually achievable that could be done, um, I think we're kind of at the point now where the the government interest, the public interest, in fact. In, in seeing services solvent and viable and sustainable on that basic level before you even get to um, trying to address quality concerns. Um, there's such a, there's such a huge public interest in that that I really can't see any sensible or reasonable objections to not having all occupancy data for all children's services in the country, as reported through the CCMS system, actually made available. In real time? I, uh, um, or in near real time, yeah. Yep. Uh, I, don't, I wouldn't go over the overboard and say you need you need to have apps and be able to see what's happened uh, you know last uh, immediately last week. But um, even anything would be an improvement on what we've got at the moment. Something that's going to give a lot more transparency around where um, problems and problem services are. That's a kind of a a, um, a significant intrusion in some respects into um, what might re be regarded as as you know, commercially sensitive information. But I think we're kind of at the point now where that may be very well in the public interest. So that's one thing I would do. The other thing I would do would be, uh, if if we could go this way, would be to come back and actually look at um, accounting standards around goodwill. And at the moment, um, the, there is an expectation put down by ASIC, the corporate regulator and overseer of the corporation's law in this area, that services are going to go ahead and, and assess for themselves whether their goodwill is uh, um, impaired or not. That, you know, the value that they're carrying on their books, and I and I think what we've seen here is a is a is a real critical um, lack a lack of critical thinking in this area, and and given that goodwill is tied in the first instance to how much um, is paid for a service when it's acquired, uh, and then when a service fails to meet its you know forecast expectations, it's reasonable to say that goodwill would be would be lowered, and we're not really seeing that, so I think that would probably be my other um, um, uh, thing that I would like to see one of those All right. thanks Carl what about you Leanne um, I, I think it's probably pretty similar is the transparency and maybe one giant interactive infographic that would be fun <laughs> um, but I, I, I in terms of saying Carl you know it's a um, it's an imposition in some way because it's about the, the you know digging into that that um, business and I suppose you weren't really saying that but that's what I took from that I think anywhere where government money goes to not not necessarily um, fund something but to that it flows through any business I think there has to be transparency around reporting 
even if it is not going directly to that service, although it is, but I, whatever, whatever it is, wherever government funding goes, I think there has to be transparency. So I, I just agree with the transparency stuff there. Yep, great. Thanks, Leanne. What about you, Lisa? Uh, look, I've got the naive little girl idea that, you know, <laughs> given that these things never work, we give you know, funding to vet providers and take it away from TAFE services and then we find out they're rotting, you know. Why don't we just start a huge fund and as these services come onto the market one by one, whether due to the failure of corporations or due to mum and dad providers wanting to get out of the sector, why don't we just buy them up and put them in public ownership and, you know, and proceed to unscramble the egg, as Kate Ellis would Mm. put it. Yeah, I think that's basically been my point as well, which would be... We talked about the start, which would be that we do. We would just change it so that it would be the same as with the school system, where you you can be private, but you can't make a profit. And I think that that would be a very unscrambling egg, and would be is far more difficult than I'm saying it. But I think we have to at least have that as a goal, even if it's a five, ten year goal. I think that's the only way we're going to get any sort of. Um, I want to do better than the school system. Why have private at all? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's the. I mean, going back to the argument, why there are private providers in the system as well is that at the moment that that can't be absorbed by community not for profit. But again, why not have that as the goal? Yeah. All right. Well, that was a very deep dive into that topic. We hope we we thank everyone for hopefully staying with us. And um, we still managed to go over an hour. We still did. We haven't even finished yet, so we're gonna. Uh, That's what I, mean. I know. So <laughs> we're still gonna do it. We might take uh, just to break things up a little and give people a break to go and put it up, put the kettle on, by the cup of tea. We'll take a really quick break, and then we'll come back with our uh, recommendations and our wrap up for the night. So stay with us. All right, welcome back. So we'll finish, as we always do, with a recommendation from each of us. So we get four this week because we're going to have one from uh, a friend of Carl as well. So, Carl, do you want to kick us off? What are you suggesting people check out this week? Uh, well, Liam, I know you're a fan of podcasts, so I have got a podcast. For, it's an interview, an overnight's interview on the ABC from back in July uh, with uh, Margaret Foe. Uh, and she's somebody who is um, very knowledgeable and very experienced in uh, Medicare and Medicare claiming and compliance. And she explores the question in that interview about whether Medicare could ever be safely privatised. And I think there are a lot of things of interest uh, or that are applicable to um, the early childhood space for anyone who might be interested in uh, the pitfalls of outsourcing IT. Yeah, thank you. I'm surprised. So this, this Medicare debate is still going on. Wasn't this something Tony Abbott tried to get past in his brief at Terrible Rain? This is still ongoing? Um, evidently, yeah. I mean, it was it was big during the election campaign, and um, this is a, a podcast from some from some months ago, but it hasn't gone away. It's still there. Mm, dear, dear. All right, Lisa, what are you bringing us this week? I'm bringing an article that was written by none other than Carl. Oh, written a few years ago. Was it a few years ago? It's hard to tell now, isn't it? Um, yes, it was written in 2014 and it gives a background on corporate childcare. And uh, I know that it really helped me understand some of the things at the time. It was published in 
Rattler magazine. So I think it's well worthwhile, anyone that's interested in corporate childcare, having a read of that because he writes as well as he speaks. Oh, Leanne, do you like this blatant sucking up to the guest? She's never linked to one of our articles. <laughs> she hasn't either, and I think that we've had we've done plenty of writing, so we'll be expecting that in the future. Let's, <laughs> let's think the best of her, Leanne. Let's think the best of her right now. Well, thank you, Lisa. That's very generous of you. Thank you. <laughs> and Liam, I often tweet your articles. I just haven't happened to mention one on here, but yes, I could. You're absolutely right. <laughs> so but I presume presume... that just leaves me out in the cold. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> you don't write much these days, girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, Leanne, how, well, when you get your PhD in, I promise I'll link to it. And I promise I will read it from one end to the other. Oh, that's going to be a good recommendation when that comes out. All right. Leah, what what have you got for us this week? Obviously nothing I've written myself. But, uh, (laughs) no, I, I... Well, what I did was I stayed up every night to wait for the conversation to come in so I could quickly (laughs) make the article before anybody else did. And I was blessed one night at 11.58 when this article came in. (laughs) She really is this competitive, people. (laughs) Early childhood educators rely on families to prop up low-income research funds. And I... The thing about this article is that it goes back to a lot of the original talk about the low pay in early childhood and that some teachers have experienced increases in pay, which is true, but many, many have not. I think we have to acknowledge that. This is in the vocational qualifications, diplomas and certificates where people have not experienced an increase in pay. And what it is is that they rely on family support on uh, partners who have a higher level of income and can subsidise or, or augment, you know, their 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 income, and obviously their super as well, um, or even and we all know the number of early childhood educators who do additional work, such as babysitting or stacking shelves or whatever. So I just think it, that perspective is really interesting because there's often this talk about the low pay, but we don't talk about who's making the difference there. And so therefore people who are uh, women who are on their own because it's predominantly women uh, are probably living well below the poverty line when they're (coughs) working in early childhood. Yeah. Another good article, we've seen a whole bunch of them actually recently in the lead up to the pay equity case next year. So let's hope they keep coming because we need to keep telling these stories. Um, And then my final one is um, a fantastic article that just came out looking at... um, uh, a topic we've been talking about over the, the run of the, the show, which is the um, the importance of the Aboriginal child and family centres. And it, this is a really great article, apart from some dodgy uses of childcare and some interesting stuff they talk about qualifications, but it talks really well about the power of early childhood education to to close the gap. So it's always worth remembering Australia didn't meet the closing the gap target for early childhood education attendance in the last report, so in 20, so 2016 this year, and had to reset it. Um, and that the Jobs for Families package is liable to close most of these fantastic centres. But um, the article uh, talks about, um, sorry, has an interview with, um, I'm going to call her a friend of the podcast because you interviewed her at ECA, but um, Geraldine Atkinson from Snake and the CEO of Snake, um, uh, Jerry, oh, and his surnames momentarily escaped me, um, uh, Jerry Moore, uh, talking about 
why these centres are so important, that they don't just provide early childhood education and care, but it's the wraparound, uh, allied health. Um, they literally give food to, you know, to children to ensure that they you know, are, are succeeding in that area. So um, definitely worth checking out and, and adding to your advocacy um, of knowledge. Uh, but we will wrap up. Thank you for everyone for sticking with us uh, for this week. I want to say, as usual, if you get a chance to rate and review us on the iTunes store, we do really appreciate it. It helps other early childhood professionals and fun advocates find the podcast. Uh, I'm going to sh- do a shout out this week to uh, Will Cook One Two Five Six, who's given us a five star review and, and said some lovely things about what we do. So thank you very much, Will. Uh, as usual, if you if you give us a rating interview, um, we'll make sure we give you a shout out in the next podcast. I also want to remind everyone that we have our question and answer episode coming up in mid December. So please send us your questions. We've had a couple of great ones come in that we're looking forward to discussing. But um, the easiest way to find the link is just to head to our Facebook or Twitter pages, which I'll link to as well. But if you go to the, the website where we host the podcast, which is earlyeducationshow.podbean.com and click on uh, either this episode or the last one, there's also a link to the uh, online form where you can send us a question um, or you can uh, hit us up, as I said, on our social media. So if you want to uh, find the show on Facebook and Twitter, the handle is the same. It's Early Edu Show. You can also find us all individually on Twitter, in, uh, including our guest, Carl. So um, you can find me at Liam McNicholas. And me at Lisa J. Bryant. And me at Leanne M. Gibbs 3. And me at Keiko Services. Fantastic. And we'll make sure we include links to all those as well. Um, Carl, thank you so much for joining us as our first guest host. We've loved having you on the show. We really appreciate it. Oh, no, you're welcome. And thank you for the invitation. All right. Well, until we're back with you next week, it's goodbye from me. And from me. From me. Uh, And me. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.